Welcome to Guilty as Charged, the law behind the crimes, a podcast all about criminal law and policy specific to Arizona. You are listening to Arizona Supreme Court Oral Argument brought to you by Guilty as Charged. Good morning. Please be seated. We're here for oral argument on State X. Adell versus Honorable Palmer Durand, our number CR21-0397. A couple things. First of all, you all probably noticed that we don't have uh, the Chief Justice here or Justice Montgomery. They have recused themselves in this matter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so it was just the five of us. Uh, we obviously, you know, we denied the motion this morning to continue the matter because here you are. Uh, so you obviously got word of that. Um, each side has 20 minutes. You may reserve whatever time you wish for rebuttal, but you have to keep your time yourself. Please proceed. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Krista Wood and I represent the state of Arizona. This court should vacate the trial court's order disqualifying the Maricopa County Attorney's Office because there was no actual, is no actual conflict and there is no appearance of impropriety. Yeah, is, just to be clear, uh, from the motion that we got in the response uh, last evening, reporting that Mr. Blum had tried to access the uh, the record in this case, but was denied access. Is that in the record before us? In other words, it was in the record at the trial court and it just wasn't brought to our attention, or is that truly newly discovered information? I believe it's in the record before you. If anything, it just demonstrates that the screen was effective as we've maintained throughout the trial court level. And that's what we advised the trial court that the screen was effective. We just wanted to be transparent and provide all information. So as soon as I became aware of that information, I advised defense counsel and he asked that I file a notice with the court. So I believe that's before the court in the record and may be considered. Well, when I say in the record, meaning the record before the trial court. The trial court made its ruling, which which favored, obviously, the defense, not you. Did it have that information? It did not have that specific information that there was an attempt to enter into, I'm sorry, to enter the case number into our electronic system. But the what the information ultimately shows is that there was an effective screen in place, and that information was presented to the trial court. Since you mentioned the screen, yes. I wanted to ask you about that. And and the state seems to have really rested a, a large part of its case on the existence of the screen. But at least uh, at the moment, I really see it in the reverse direction. You can definitely screen him as an attorney, um, but you can't screen him as a victim. We have recognized very significant responsibilities on the part of prosecutors uh, with regard to representing and communicating with victims. And that seems to make a, a you can't screen that, uh, or it seems to me you can't screen that. So doesn't that make this the unusual situation where a screen uh, really is a, a, a real screen uh, is really not possible? No, Your Honor, and I have a few reasons to explain that position. Um, a screen in the sense of participating in the case for ethical rule purposes would prevent a person from participating as a prosecutor as it relates to this specific case. Victim 12 does not participate as a prosecutor. He has no control over what plea offer is made. He does have a right to be conferred. He has a right to be heard, but he does not control what plea offer is made. He does not control what stance, what motions are made, or how the case is argued, or um, 
or how the uh, state makes charging decisions. There, there's no question that that's true. But I think that the one of the arguments that the defendant is making is, hey, they're looking out for their own. Uh, this is a person who's going to be involved. It's, it's one of their colleagues, even though in a different part of, of the office. Um, that's uh, they're going to be having having regular communications. That's that could be potentially influential. I have a couple responses to that. First of all, there should not be a bright line that as the cases that we have cited and this court has specifically said this type of appearance and propriety does not have a bright line. The factors should be reviewed. And we presume that prosecutors and any attorney will abide by their ethical obligations. If there's untoward actions by somebody, the prosecutor has an obligation to specifically say that. In both Flores and Villopando, this uh, the Court of Appeals noted that the courts will not presume the prosecutor will seek a conviction at all costs and will assume that the prosecutors act in good faith. And so to your concern, if there are concerns that would be something that a prosecutor would be op- and any attorney would be obligated to bring up. Also, there would be objective information, possibly, if the plea offer was clearly out of line for what the normal is. That might be something that a defendant could point to to show an appearance of impropriety. But where there's a screen in place and where an uh, affected attorney is not involved in the prosecution of the case, we do believe that should be a presumption that there is no appearance of impropriety because that person is not involved. And the fact that they do have victims' rights, they have a right to be confirmed, I mean, to confer with the state, they have a right to be heard, but they don't have a right to direct or prosecute the case. And that's also been specifically addressed in such cases as Flores, that the state does not represent a victim, the state does not pursue the victim's interest. The victim has rights to be informed, but they do not have a right to direct, and the prosecutors do not have a duty to them as they would to a client. Furthermore, the fact of a screen being in place as presumptive of showing that there is no appearance of impropriety is supported by public policy. The point of having the appearance of impropriety standard is to ensure that there is trust in the system and that a defendant is treated fairly. If an affected I'm sorry, if an affected attorney is screened off the case, there should be a presumption that there is no appearance of impropriety. The defendant could, of course, rebut that presumption by showing harm. And in this case, as we have laid out, there is no harm articulable that has been shown. One of the one of the questions I had was was how this should work, not only in this case, but in in future cases where uh, especially your office is large enough that I'm sure people that work there are victims of crimes and and how. Uh, the defense should even be told, or if they should be told, that the victim is works for your office. I see here there was um, some criticism of, well, we didn't even we didn't tell the defense, and the defense found out because I guess Mr. Blum showed up at the settlement conference and thought, oh, lo and behold, it's the same guy. Um, so that's I'm just wondering. And then on the other hand, you have statutes for victims. And and the statute says that a victim's identifying and locating information shall not be given to the defense, including defense counsel. And locating information includes where you work. So it seems that on the one hand, they should know to be able to be able to even argue that there should be a conflict. On the other hand, we have victim statutes preventing you from doing that. Uh, So how do we handle it? 
I believe the best practice would have been to advise the defendant that the victim is employed by the county attorney's office. Yes, there's a statute on point about victim. And in this particular case, it, it was an oversight. The, the screen was in place from the beginning. Um, Mr. Blum's name was, I'm sorry, the victim 12's name was specifically listed in the um, police report. There was no hiding the fact of, of who this person was. It would have been the best practice to advise defense counsel. However, there, the screen was in place. The defendant suffered no harm. Also, just to clarify on the facts of the case, the defendant was aware that victim 12 was employed by our office prior to the settlement conference. In August 20, on August 24th, 2021, which is a document in our appendix, the defendant submitted a deviation request. And part of the request was based on the fact there might be a potential conflict. And that was used as a type of bargaining chip to try and get a better plea offer in this case. The parties then did meet for a settlement conference on September 21st. About a month later, Mr. I'm sorry, the victim 12 was present at that time. And the prosecutor at that time, uh, when defense counsel brought up the fact that there was a could be a possible conflict, asked to stop the proceedings at that time. When the judge came out, the prosecutor again asked to stop the proceeding and defendant decided to proceed forward, wanted to proceed forward with settlement negotiations, agreed to waive any potential conflict and move forward with um, engaging in settlement negotiations. But when we write that, but they found out regardless, uh, they found out that Mr. Blum was employed there from their own efforts, not from your office affirmatively telling them. Yes. Despite how we end up deciding this case, when we write an opinion about it, uh, is should we simply say that more than a best practice that it's required to preserve constitutional rights of the defense that the the office should inform folks if a victim is employed by your office? Should we? What's wrong with that? You could certainly make that. I. In an evaluating case, I don't know of any other specific standard that says that information should be provided, that there's a requirement on the state to provide that information. But as I've said, it, it would have been a best practice. So if this court directed or mandated that, I can't, um, I don't have any legal authority to go against that that requirement. Yeah, the only thing I've, I have found is that the, the legislature has amended this year the statute to add a section which explicitly says that the court may order identifying information disclosed if it's necessary to protect a defendant's constitutional rights, uh, that that kind of thing, and then give the victim an opportunity to argue whether it should be done. Uh, so I, I don't know that you have the authority just to tell them. That's why I'm kind of confused on how you should proceed. And as as concerns the appearance of impropriety, as the court has noted, a, a big argument is that if a, if there is an effective screen, that um, there should be a presumption against appearance of impropriety. It, because we are arguing that the defendant should have the right to rebut that if um, if there's specific information to do that, that would be the only reason for saying that it would be a best practice to let defense know that, that there is... Um, this employee who was a victim in the crime so that if the issue came up later as was discovered later, it would have been addressed earlier on. Mm -hmm. 
Also, there has been a lot of concern through other cases of the concern of public suspicion uh, as it relates to appearance of impropriety. I would like to argue also that the public suspicion concern goes both ways. There have been um, many motions to disqualify the county attorney's office, and by granting the dis motions to disqualify, it not only causes uh, difficulty in determining who else would prosecute those cases, I um as we heard earlier today, um, I respectfully disagree with um, prior statement that that's what the attorney general's office is there for. They are not required to take these cases. It, there must be somebody who can be found. So it's not a simple fix. Also, um, as has been alleged in this case, the defendant uses this as a kind of game, like we want the best, best plea we can. If you're not going to give us the best plea, then we're going to do this motion to try and get the whole office disqualified, which is an extreme remedy. So it is subject to abuse. Also, it does so doubt in the minds of the public that the county attorney's office can't be trusted to abide by the ethical rules and follow what the dictates are. And um, as has further been discussed in the briefing, that uh, the the public has a right to their choice of counsel. The state has a right to their choice of counsel by the elected officials. And this increased the costs and delay to the state as well as to victims by, and by disqualifying the entire prosecuting attorney's office. So for the appearance of impropriety, we would ask that this court find that if there's an ethical screen in place, there should be a presumption that there is no appearance of impropriety. This could be rebutted by the defendant showing um, some of the factors that are listed in Alexander and Gomez, specifically actual harm or articulable harm, uh, which was not shown here as there were broad uh, claims of due process, charging decisions, and the plea that do not show a harm to the defendant. Also, just to touch on the ethical uh, rules, the defendant also argued that there was an actual conflict. There is no conflict under ER 1.7. Victim 12 was never assigned to this case. He never prosecuted the case. An imputation to a county attorney's office is guided by ER 1.11, not 1.10, which is explained in comment 3 to 1.11, indicating that government agencies have an inherent interest in uh, and um, attract and qualified individuals to work for those government agencies. Do we have to decide this under one the 1 1.7 issue? I, I noticed that that wasn't the basis of the motion to disqualify, but you all injected that in your response. And so I, one of my questions is that, is that before us, the 1.7? I believe it is. Be, oh, I'm sorry. I believe it is because it was alleged uh, by the defendant at the trial court level. Um, and the trial judge, respondent judge, only said that the motion was being granted in the interest of justice. He did not delineate between the ethical rules or the appearance of impropriety. Did he do any Gomez factors at all? No, Your Honor, he did not. Okay, but, so does that need to be, just need to be sent back, you know, for a redetermination under the Gomez factors? While that's a possibility, I believe the record is sufficient for this court to determine that the facts do not support any of the Gomez factors, and so the motion to disqualify should be vacated. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the rest of my time. Good morning. I'm Michael Dini, and I'm here on behalf of the defendant and the underlying prosecution, uh, Tamira Duran. It's our position that in this matter, the prosecutor who is a victim of the case being prosecuted has a personal interest conflict 
Um, we were just discussing that, um, which must be imputed to the, has, entire- has the state's position on that on that issue changed through the litigation. Well, I, I believe it has. Um, from the beginning, it's my understanding that there was a conflict which was agreed to by the trial level attorney. And in her email to me, responding to my assertion that I believe that victim 12 um, was also a prosecutor in her office, she indicated that he had been adequately screened off. And so, uh, Justice Bean, you are correct that over time, it appears that um, the county attorney's office has sort of evolved in their position with regard to acknowledgement, first of all, of that conflict. And then again, over time, have asserted that there is no conflict, there's no um, personal interest, there's no problem with regard to imputation, et cetera. So... You are correct that that has been an evolving process. What, uh, what is the basis of the, the conflict? It looked like the court just ruled on an appearance of impropriety. Do we need to go through an actual conflict analysis under 1.7 here? Well, I think that um, the the facts underlying the case would satisfy the concerns outlined by that particular rule. Um, with regard to what we view as the problems with regard to that, we see a financial stake with regard to the prosecutor, victim 12 in this case. And we also see uh, the concern of a personal agenda um, in that we believe that he has a personal stake in knowing how the case is prosecuted. We believe that there is the potential that he will be supportive of a harsh plea agreement. Um, he may be currying favor with his own supervisors. He certainly showed up to support the prosecution um, when he was present both by video link and then in person um, at the settlement conference. We now find out through the email I received from state's attorney last night that he apparently is using his own email since he received an email from the victim's rights advocate um, informing him of an upcoming court date. We're to learn from state's counsel's attorney that the reason he attempted to access um, this particular file is because he received that email. And not only did he uh, attempt to access it once, um, apparently he attempted to access it 11 minutes later, which begs the question for all of us, if you're properly screened off and you're receiving emails on your county attorney email address and you're attempting to access this particular client's file, Mr. Duran's file, you not do it, you don't do it once, you do it twice. How is that an effective screen? Number one. He wasn't given access to the file though. My understanding from your motion response was that he tried to get in and and he gets something electronically saying screened off. He can't get in. Correct. Um, he he did that twice. So again, we the question is why did he do it a second time if he thought that he could not access it the first time? There's something there that needs to be fleshed out, which was in part the basis of my emergency motion. Of course, but, you, you prevailed below, though, so you you wouldn't want the trial court to reconsider a ruling that was favorable to you. 
Would you? No, and I, I'm not. I'm not asking for that, Your Honor. But what I am saying is that these actions, as outlined in the email, further bolster the fact that this particular victim, this particular prosecutor, has a vested interest, a personal agenda, if you will, in the prosecution. It further indicates that he's not sufficiently walled off in that he's receiving emails from victims advocate to him with regard to the case. And it also begs the question with regard to the screen that's in place as to whether or not the county attorney's office is doing adequate reviews or audits over time to ensure that the screen is adequate. So we're to believe that this particular activity of the victim, number 12, occurred back in 2021. We're just now finding out about the fact that he attempted the access. So the question is, what's in the file? What is it that shows that he accessed it? Why wasn't it made available to us earlier? And the fact that it wasn't made available to us earlier also begs the question as to the actual screen in place and whether or not the county attorney's office was doing periodic audits to make sure that the screen was adequate. If if you don't prevail here and it goes back, nothing precludes you from raising all new, new newly discovered evidence and raising those arguments, does it? No, it doesn't, um, Justice Timmer, and I appreciate your saying that. My concern, again, is for purposes of today's hearing, what does this all say about the personal agenda of victim uh, number 12 as a prosecutor? And what does it say about the audit process uh, of the screen? And I think that those are important questions for the justices justices, excuse me, um, to consider in rendering his decision. Well, I, we're not a fact-finding court. Um, so we have to address the, the rule of, of law that came out of trial court's decision. And I wanted to clarify your position on that. Is it your position that if a victim is employed by a prosecutor's office, that that automatically uh, requires disqualification in the entire office? I think it does. Um, I think that it is a bright line, which is easily enforceable. It's predictable. And it addresses many of the concerns that we're expressing today with respect to the public perception of this prosecution and other prosecutions. So that if you are the county attorney and you are maintaining the ethics of your office and you are concerned about the public perception of your office, you should therefore be concerned about the fact that within all of the, the turmoil that this situation can create, as evidenced by the record in this case, isn't it cleaner for them to know that in this situation, um, they are required to send it to the AG's office or some other county um, authority for prosecution. It seems like it's clean. It seems like it's predictable. And again, avoids all of this added pressure that we feel with regard to the arguments that we're making here. On that point, how far would that go? So what if hypothetically 
it was a prosecutor's family member that was a victim. Uh, you know, how, how far would that argument, your argument, go on that point? I mean, in talking about how frequently the prosecutor's office would have to be entirely recused from a case. Yeah. So I think, um, Justice King, I think that's a, a great question. And my answer would be, uh, my suggestion would be that it be limited to actual attorneys practicing in the county attorney's office or employees of the county attorney's office, perhaps. Um, you know, we can kind of create a parade of possibilities um, that may be opened up as a result of the court's ruling. But I think in order to make the clean type of rule that is necessary for these agencies, I think that if you are someone who is at the county attorney's office and you have relationships with other um, prosecutors within the office and you are in communication as a victim with regard to a specific case, and you are being consulted as a result of being a victim in a case with regard to plea negotiations, with regard to the status of the case, and ultimately um, the possibility exists that you're going to be consulted as a witness in the underlying prosecution of the case, um, then I think that that fits within the neat category that we're talking about here. I would not suggest that we go beyond that, but I certainly understand and appreciate your point, Justice King. So it would be any employees, including the non-attorney employees? That would be my um, position, uh, Justice Timmer. I, I think that... How could a paralegal say at the county attorney's office affect in a substantial way, or in any way, really, the prosecution of a case? Well, as a victim, they absolutely can affect the prosecution of a case with regard to their input to the county attorney um, as such. And how would that be imputed for possible disqualification analysis? So I think that's a great point, and I actually had not thought it um, to that level. So I appreciate um, your viewpoint. And, and to that to that extent, I mean, what about what about a janitor who works at a county attorney's office? Doesn't doesn't this the fact that you've you've wavered a little bit on on this point doesn't just doesn't this illustrate the wisdom of employing the Gomez analysis? Because given someone the centrality of someone's role in processing of cases may be more likely to yield a conclusion that disqualification is appropriate. And the further you go down the spectrum when you're dealing with it, an office like the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, where there are hundreds of attorneys and I expect probably well over a thousand employees, maybe, um, doesn't it make sense to, to, to look at the facts of each case under a framework that we've already set forth? Well, it would make sense if uh, the county's attorney, the county attorney's office, believe that in a situation as specific as this one, that they would see the wisdom in disqualifying themselves. And so, I think what's brought us here today is the fact that they failed to see that wisdom. Um, not only did they fail to inform me of the conflict, as indicated early on. Um, but they also failed to inform prior counsel of Ms. Durand, and apparently they failed to inform the co-defendant's counsel. And so we see over a series of events that substantial failure, 
And frankly, I only found out about it because I have someone working in my office as an attorney who is a former county attorney who recognized victim 12. Um, had that not happened, then I wouldn't have known. Well, th- they ask what I was asking um, Ms. Wood then about the ability of the prosecutor's office to inform defense counsel. Because we have the statute, 1344-34, which prevents the prosecuting office from revealing the, where the victim works. Um, and now that it looks like they have, they, the legislature, have amended the statute, but it didn't exist the time that this all, this happened in this case, but they've now amended the statute to say that if it's necessary to protect the defendant's constitutional rights uh, or where the information is reasonably necessary uh, to be given to them, a court can order it. But you have to give the victim an opportunity then to come in. That seems to say to me, at least by the statute, that there's a mechanism for revealing the information, but it's not something like the prosecutor picks up the phone and calls you, um, as might have happened 10 years ago. <laughs> so what, what? how should they proceed under this framework? I think the county attorney's office should develop a policy, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, stating that if there is an attorney employed at their office who is a victim in a case, they should be responsible for informing defense counsel of that fact, and defense counsel can then move forward along with the county attorney's office, possibly, um, in filing the appropriate paperwork with a superior court judge so that um, that further information can be developed. But the the simple point is, um, Justice Timmer, that there needs to be the acknowledgement, first of all, I believe, from the county attorney's office, and then the mechanisms that you just outlined, Justice Timmer, need to be followed with regard to um, asking a court to reveal that information. And I and I understand that that process that I outlined might not necessarily comport with the statutes that you're um, presenting, Justice Timmer, but certainly... I believe that what it does do is provide some opportunity for the parties to communicate and understand from the superior court um, filing what the information is that's necessary in order to understand the underlying yeah. potential conflict. And, and the reason I'm, I know I'm, I'm going to be this because I'm trying to envision how you know what we would say about it because there is no. I mean, there's, you've criticized them for not telling you sooner. If we said, yeah, that's right, you should, they should have told you sooner because there's a rule or because there's authority. There is no rule that I've seen. There is, if it was a former client, 1.9 says explicitly that you need to tell the former client uh, that you're now employed. But there isn't one in this scenario for victims. And, you, and the only authority I found is statutory, which seems to go against you. So that's why I'm endeavoring to say, okay, they they should have told you because fill in the blank. Because I think that it affects the general due process rights of the defendant in this okay. case. So they should, what they should do, you wouldn't object to saying that in this kind of scenario, they should maybe, per the statute, go to the court and ask for an order to reveal the information. I believe so, yes. Something like that. Yes. Or if we adopt a right line rule to simply disqualify itself. Yeah. Or that. I think that would be uh, a perfect solution, Justice Bach. <laughs> I just want to point out a couple of other factors um, of concern with regard to this case, and that is the public perception issue. 
Um, as the court is well aware, um, the processing of plea agreements throughout the Superior Court process is an important part of that process. I think we all are aware of the statistics of cases that are resolved by plea agreements. And I want to emphasize to the justices the fact that this particular scenario um, involving the proposal of a plea agreement, frankly, makes my job much more difficult when a defendant is reviewing a plea offer and listening to my advice with regard to whether or not the plea offer being um, offered to them is the best possible outcome under the circumstances. And I will avow to the court that Ms. Durand is someone who is a very intelligent person. Um, she's aware of the news. She reads the local newspapers. She's aware of issues within the county attorney's office and the perception of African-Americans with regard to their treatment through the county attorney's office. And this entire scenario um, may have the effect of disincentivizing individuals from agreeing to plea outcomes in their cases. When they see a county attorney who is also a victim take time from his job and whether or not he took actual time off to appear at a settlement conference, um, when we now know that a county attorney is receiving emails with respect to um, a prosecution, when that county attorney is also a victim, it raises concerns with regard to the general fairness and appropriateness of plea agreements and whether or not what's being offered is um, actually in the best interests of the defendant and in the best interests of justice. And so I just um, kind of end today by saying that that should be a consideration for the county attorney's office with regard to um, the perception of defendants who are considering entering into plea agreements um, where they see this type of scenario, which again could have been completely avoided um, had it been handled properly um, from the beginning. To be clear on one factual point, aren't all victims required to get notification about the hear each hearing and and each that their settlements and all those kinds of things? I mean, that's required of every victim. He didn't get special treatment here. Did no. He? And, and Justice Timmer, I'm not um, alleging that. What I am saying is that with regard to the wall, the quarantine that's put up, um, it's impossible for that to exist when a county attorney is showing up for a settlement conference when we know, based upon the county attorney's office own brochure, that there's a discussion that goes on with the prosecution um, and victims with regard to the prosecution of the case, trial, disposition, release decisions, and plea offers. And so all of that lends to um, the factors that I'm talking about with regard to the fundamental fairness of the situation. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Wood. To touch off on where defense counsel left, um, 
This court has noted a a concern for public suspicion and uh, maintaining the trust in the criminal justice system. And there's mechanisms in place to do that, such as the screen that's specifically discussed in the ethical rules. There's also ethical rules that if a prosecuting agency or any attorney believes that they cannot um, adequately represent their client, they would uh, no longer be a part of that case. Under ER 1.7, if the county attorney's office believed that there was a conflict and we could not represent the state, we would not be representing the state in that case. That's not what we have here. We have a screen that was put in place and was effective. And um, we've demonstrated that it's effective because it was started from the beginning and is very similar to the um, screen that was put in place in Pearson that was specifically accepted, where in that case, the affected attorney had confidential information about the defendant, met multiple defendants, and that screen was deemed effective. Well, could you address the point that Mr. Dean makes? This is a good point that it's different with a victim. I mean, a victim now, victim has so many rights mm-hmm. and they have the right to confer with the prosecution. So it's not your standard screening off where he's never going to hear about this case. He gets to hear about the case and he gets to talk to the prosecutor about the case, gets to talk to the prosecutor about the plea offer being made. I mean, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of interaction. And whether the, even if I presume that the prosecutor is doing, doing her job or his job, um, From a public perception standpoint, that's a bit bothersome. And as part of the public is the defendant. Do we look at it from his point of view? Hey, do I, am I really getting a fair shake when I see another fellow prosecutor being able to be here and to confer with the prosecution? So could you address that? Yes. State's argument is that there should not be a bright line. There should be mechanisms that the state could continue to prosecute and prosecute a case in which a victim is also employed by that office. And there are many, several reasons for that. Um, and I'm sorry, first, looking at other jurisdictions, Amicus cited several cases, for instance, a, a case in Georgia where a an employee's child was murdered and that agency was still able to prosecute that case, arguably much um, different than the case that we have here. Also, um, in our petition for special action, the state cited several cases from other jurisdictions where prosecutors were specifically victimized by defendants. And while those prosecutors were not able to prosecute the case, the agency was still able to prosecute the case. In those scenarios, did the victims have the kind of rights to confer with the prosecution that our state grants? I don't believe in those cases that they had the specific rights that Arizona does. But looking at our ethical rules, we we specify that a individual should be screened from participating in the case. Participating as a prosecutor is distinctly different than participating as a victim. A right to be informed and to express an opinion is much different than prosecuting the case, making charging decisions, plea negotiations, engaging in the actual prosecution of the case. And that difference should be acknowledged. There, there should not be a bright line rule that anytime somebody's victimized, and if you are an employee for a government agency, that agency can no longer handle that case. In Maricopa County, we have approximately 299 attorneys. In addition, we have approximately 970 employees. That is a significant amount of people and a significant amount of cases that could have to be sent to other jurisdictions who may not have the people to handle those cases and an attorney general who may not accept those cases. Also looking at smaller jurisdictions, that would cause a great impact to them. That would require them to find other agencies to um, 
prosecute those cases. And also from a public suspicion point of view, it would send a message that county attorneys just can't be trusted to follow their ethical rules. We are... See, that's... I, I, I couldn't agree with you more as a general proposition, but the relationship between a prosecutor and a victim is not an entirely hands uh, or arm's length um, relationship. It's it's fairly symbiotic, and so even if the the prosecutor is scrupulously ethical, necessarily there has to be a, a pretty close communicative relationship there. Thank you for pointing that out. And that raises a good point. I, I disagree that there's a symbiotic relationship between prosecutors and victims. There are many times that victims disagree with prosecutors. Victims hire their own counsel. There are several times when victors, victims object to what the prosecutor is doing, and they will refer the victims to seek outside counsel. Victims do not direct the prosecutors. And if they oppose what the prosecutor is saying and they want it to go a different route. Prosecutors do not follow the victim's directive. As further explained in Flores, prosecutors do not represent the victim's interests. They represent the state's interests. And victims have the ability to go against what the prosecutor says, have their own attorneys, and vehemently object to what the prosecution is doing. And if the victim I'm sorry, if a victim employee in a county attorney's office objected to some, I'm sorry, ex exceeded their authority and tried to, uh, impose undue influence, the prosecutor would be due to their ethical obligations to speak up and say something also, which which happens. The as you saw in Golden, issues that come up are reported. They come out. They the defense is able to learn about those things. This type of harm is able to be known. But simply the fact that a person is a victim and employed by the county attorney's office should not be a justification for saying that entire office cannot handle the case and cannot be trusted to handle the case and follow their ethical So if you're beyond your time. I am so sorry. Uh, I apologize. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank both counsel for the briefing and for the argument today. We'll take the matter under advisement and issue a decision and report. Stand adjourned. Thanks for joining us today on Guilty as Charged. Please subscribe to our podcast to get more great discussion about law and crimes specific to Arizona and also get access to Arizona Supreme Court audio. You can find Jake on Twitter at Jacob Brown AZ. 